This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. On air, online or via your ABC Listen app. Always great to have your company. Now coming up later, the very interesting Labor people you've never heard about. After Lionel Murphy went to the High Court, Reid was elected Whitlam's second Senate leader and um, he didn't mind an argument with Gough, which was not easy to do. So he told Gough he was wrong <laughs> about the Governor-General. He had the wrong strategy. He was going to end badly. He urged wow. Gough to call an election. And historians can, can differ about whether Reid was right or Whitlam was right, but he was one of the very few who, who said to Gough Whitlam, no, you've got this wrong. Stay with us for Labor frontbencher and historian Chris Bowen. But first, the global economy. Not long ago, the conventional wisdom held that the post-COVID economy, that would represent a global boom. However, several factors, the ferocious spread of the Delta COVID variant, higher inflation in America and Europe, the threat of rising interest rates there, cracks in China's economic engines, well, all this raises disturbing questions. Has the global economy already hit its speed limit? And what's the outlook for emerging markets? Rucha Sharma is Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management in New York. He's a contributing editor with the Financial Times and author of several best-selling books, including The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. Rucha, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. Great to have you back on. Now, has the global economy already peaked? Well, uh, I'm not sure if it's already peaked, but I think that the growth expectations are turning out to be too high, that we began the year thinking that we're going to have a global economic boom on the back of uh, this reopening of the global economy. Uh, Now, whereas a lot of the global economy has reopened, and in places like the US where I am, the uh, activity does appear to be quite normal. But I think in many parts of the world, the opening has been a bit delayed. But more than that, we've got a couple of surprises, as I guess we always do, that old line that the inevitable rarely happens, the unexpected always does. So the couple of surprises that we have had so far, and uh, you referenced to that as well uh, in your opening remarks, is really about China. Uh, I think that what's happening in China is very significant, which is that... uh, the Chinese government is cracking down on their tech sector. And that has been the major contributor to their economic growth over the past few years. And in turn, China, as you know, has been the largest contributor to global economic growth over the past few years. So that is a major worry because in China, they're cracking down on the tech sector and the digital economy in China now is nearly 40% of their economy. So I think we still think of China as you know the old economy with a lot of brick and mortar type infrastructure, but the tech economy has become very significant and the crackdown that's happening there led by uh, the Chinese government to rein in their sort of wild west of capitalism, I think has uh, significant consequences. And they're also cracking down on the property sector, the other sector, which is a very major part of their economy. So I think that that has major consequences for global economic growth. And in general, 
the global economy is still doing well, but the uh, trajectory isn't quite as strong as what people and analysts forecast just a few months ago. Yes, and we also often talk about America's rising debt and deficits, but China has huge debt problems too, right? Yes, uh, it does. I, and that is something which I was very concerned about a decade ago, and I wrote extensively about that, about the amount of debt that China had taken, especially in the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2008-2009. It took on huge amounts of debt to try and keep its economy going and hit its uh, very ambitious growth targets. But what bailed the Chinese economy out was that over the last five years, you've had this incredible liftoff of the digital economy in China. Uh, I don't think there's any other major economy in the world uh, today where digital revenues or the share of the economy are as high as in China. In China, in fact, the digital economy as a share of its economy is even larger than the major developed nations such as the United States. So that has what's really bailed the Chinese economy out, that the, a lot of the debt that we speak about is in the old economy, uh, in the aluminium, steel, coal, those kind of sectors. And the new economy led by the digital economy is relatively debt-free and has parred the Chinese economy ahead and saved it uh, from what could have been a debt crisis uh, five or seven years ago. Meanwhile, let's turn to America. You've called it the comeback nation. Now, this is a fascinating story that doesn't really get enough attention. After the global financial crisis, so this is 2008, 2009, I think it's fair to say, Richard, that the, the consensus view was that the US share of the global economy would decline. Now, if anything, as you've documented, the US percentage of global GDP, that's increased from 21% 2011 to 25% last year. And as a financial superpower, America's power today is unrivaled. Its share of global stock markets has increased in the 2010s from 42% to 58%. How do you account for this? You know, it's so interesting, uh, Tom, because exactly a decade ago to almost the exact week or so, the S&P, the major rating agency, downgraded America's debt for the first time. Uh, and there was so much pessimism about America back then because it was seen to be the economy that led the world into the global financial crisis and was limping its way out of it a decade ago. And here we are uh, with America having done so well over the last decade in both economic terms and, as you say, even more so in financial terms. In fact, as a financial superpower, America has possibly never been this dominant. And I use that word very carefully because we got data going back hundreds of years. And I can't think of an instance where America has been this dominant from a financial perspective, its share of the global stock market. The dollar as a reserve currency is as uh, valued as ever. And also about the fact that nearly 90% of all transactions in the world involve the US dollar, which gives America so much financial and political might uh, because it, it can impose sanctions on anyone and use that uh, in a major way. So issue is what happened? The big story in America also has been about technology, which is that, uh, that it's been powered a lot, as you know, by these tech giants that have emerged uh, out of nowhere. Uh, you know, like the fact that you have these top companies that are all domiciled in America today. If you look at the top 10 companies in the 
in the world today, barring a couple of them, they're all American companies today. That was not the case a decade ago. You have companies like Amazon, which a decade ago did not even rank in the top 100 companies of the world. And today it is among the top five companies in the world. Uh, and it's a household name uh, practically everywhere. This is a bullish story, but what about the enormous deficits and debt that the US has accumulated in fighting the pandemic? Surely there are going to be dire consequences of that, Rucha? Absolutely. But I think that the point there is that most countries have done that, which is that it's not just America, but many other countries, including Australia and other countries, have accumulated a lot of debt to fight the pandemic. Now, I do agree that as far as America is concerned, it has taken its status even more for granted and has accumulated even more debt uh, than the average developed nation. So, yeah, going forward, I'm more concerned about America. But I think first we have to acknowledge where we're coming from. The last decade has been great for America. But as happens so often that when a country does very well for a decade, it often ends up accumulating a lot of debt and a lot of excesses. And then it spends the next decade working off those excesses, working off that fact. So I am concerned about the fact that America in the coming decade will not do as well as it did in the last decade. But I think the story of America being the comeback nation is amazingly still underappreciated by the global audience. My guest is Richard Sharma. He's from Morgan Stanley Investment Management in New York. Now, let's turn to your recent foreign affairs magazine essay. It's titled The Resurgence of the Rest. During the first decade of the century, this is the 2000s, it was widely believed that the future belonged to the developing world. And we all remember the rock-solid growth emerging markets of Brazil, Russia, India, China. You've written a lot about this, the so-called BRICS. But during the past decade, so the 2010s, so many emerging economies have grown far more slowly. Why? It's because that is usually the norm, Tom, that most people think that all because it's a developing country and an emerging nation, it's bound to grow more quickly because that's where the growth is, that's where the population is. The base is a lot lower and it's able to lift off from a lower base. But that just is not true because the reason many countries are not able to grow rapidly is because they have so many institutional weaknesses. They end up not being able to reform when things are good. They only reform when uh, the times are bad. So that is the reason that you had so much hubris which had set into these economies. So in fact, a decade ago, the first book I wrote was called Breakout Nations. My main thesis in that book was that a lot of these emerging economies, uh, such as Brazil, Russia, are way overhyped, and the true breakout nation in the world is America. Now, a decade later, I think things are very different. But the reason why these economies did so poorly over the last decade, because expectations got very high, they picked up a lot of debt, they did not carry out any economic reforms, and then many of them suffered as the commodity cycle went bust. And a lot of these emerging economies are still very dependent on commodities uh, as their major export. So that combination is what led to this major growth disappointment over the last decade for so many of the other economies outside of the United States. And yet you are optimistic about the 2020s. Yeah, I've got this view in my head, which is that if you look at the past 100 years, you see a very consistent pattern, which is that every decade, there is some theme which dominates the global economy. And then in the subsequent decade, that theme ends up underperforming or going bust, right? We can go back and look at history in this. The 1980s was all about Japan. 
we all thought that Japan was going to conquer the world. Then that went bust. 1990s, it was all about, again, these America and uh, America's tech firms, and you had the huge NASDAQ boom. Well, in the next decade, that went bust. And then we had the commodity boom that came on uh, and led by so many economies around the world, including in Australia and other emerging economies, they all benefited in the 2000s. And then that went bust. The same thing happened back in the 1970s too. So every decade you have some theme which captures the imagination of the world that goes bust and some new theme then emerges from the ashes. So that's my point, which is that over the last decade, many of these emerging economies have spent their time cleaning up their balance sheets, trying to stabilize their debt situation. They are now carrying out economic reforms. And the last very important point, that the benefits of the increased digitization and the fact that the tech economy has become so big, those benefits are now likely to be reaped by many of the emerging nations because these nations don't have any legacy infrastructure. Many people in places like Kenya or even in places like Bangladesh they never had a bank account. So they're going directly to using their mobile phones to, uh, for doing transactions. Uh, so they're almost leapfrogging the West in some regard or being able to use technology. Uh, your, line yeah. then, your line then is that, that, that many poor and middle-income nations have not lost their knack of catching up with the richest nations. Not everyone agrees. This is The Economist magazine earlier this month, Richard, quote, even if emerging economies avoid chaos, the legacy of COVID and rising protectionism could condemn them to a long period of slower growth. How would you respond to The Economist, Richard? Well, I've been also very sceptical of these theories about convergence and that all of these developing economies are going to catch up to the West. But I think that The Economist represents what the conventional wisdom currently is. A decade ago, uh, I don't want to pick on The Economist, but they had cover stories about how Brazil was going to boom, how Africa was going to boom, right? And now a decade ago, like, uh, and now a decade later, they are sort of pouring scorn over emerging economies. And I think that we underappreciate some of the strengths. The digital economies which are emerging in these countries is, I think, being underestimated. So, so much of life is about expectations. And the expectations of this cohort is today badly beaten down. So I think that that is the very important part here, which is the fact that where are expectations and what is the future likely to be? And I think that because these emerging economies, you know, after a long time, India is being forced to carry out economic reforms because they don't have the kind of resources to go out and stimulate and spend the way some of the Western or some of the developed countries have done. So they're actually being forced to carry out productivity enhancing reforms by improving the labor market, by doing something on the agricultural side, by doing more privatization. So that's it. Nations reform when they have their back to the wall, not when they're in cruise control. Many of the emerging nations currently have their back to the wall and are being forced to carry out path-breaking economic reforms. Richard, we could go on. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. It's always great to have you on ABC. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure chatting with you and hopefully we have a next conversation before it's another two years. That was Richard Sharma, Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, we all know this Labor giant. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. <laughs>
and this Labor character. I mean, you know, I mean, he's going, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, he's going tropo. And who can forget this Labor legend? Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor General. Or the Labor PM who guided us through to victory in World War II. The war which Japan started can now only end in the complete defeat of Japan. I have no doubt that our allies and ourselves will see that struggle through to its complete conclusion. Yes, we all know the Bob Hawkes, the Paul Keatings, the Gough Whitlams and the John Curtins, but what about other servants of the Labor Party who played very important, albeit largely unnoticed, roles in our history? They span the 1890s to the 1970s, and their stories are told in a new book called Labor People, the stories of six true believers. The author is Chris Bowen, a federal Labor shadow minister. G'day, Chris. Welcome back to the show. G'day, Tom. Great to be back, mate. Now, we talked in April about your last book on charlatans. How on earth do you find the time to write two books and hold a portfolio (laughs) within just a few months? (laughs) You know, often the way these things is they're long projects which all sort of come to fruition at once. This uh, Labor People book's been sort of bouncing around in my head for for years, really. Um, And I've, uh, you know, at various times jotted down various things and brought it together really in the last two years to, to come together as a book. Now, let's focus on these underappreciated or largely forgotten figures of Labor history. Uh, First, Gregor McGregor. He was the first federal deputy leader of the ALP. What a fantastic name, first thing, uh, Gregor McGregor. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and an amazing, an amazing man who has been utterly forgotten by Australian political history. I mean, you know, you really need to be an aficionado to get the trivia question right who was the first deputy leader of the Labor Party. <laughs> and, what's, and what's even more remarkable, Tom, is, you know, he was uh, really the first uh, member of parliament who was disabled. He was uh, blind. By the beca- yes. time he became deputy leader, he was totally blind. He'd had a... Completely blind and yet a compelling yeah. speaker. Well, and perhaps because he was completely blind, they say he was the most compelling speaker of the early years parliament. He memorised everything. He could quote long sections of things he wanted to refer to, including, you know, biblical passages in favour of his argument. Um, he was a fascinating guy. A tree branch had fallen on him when he was a gardener. He, he worked as a gardener. Wow. and Yeah, a tree branch fell on him on his face and then his, his eyesight gradually deteriorated over the years and by the time he got to Parliament, he was blind. Uh, interestingly, uh, he, the, he was a gardener for uh, Sir Richard Baker, who when he went on to serve in the Senate with. I'm sure that wasn't something that they predicted. (laughs) And you say he was completely loyal to the Labor leaders, Watson and Fisher, completely loyal. Absolutely. He was the archetypal perfect deputy. And under the rules of the Labor Party at the time, interestingly, he was deputy because he was Senate leader. Um, the, The way they set up the caucus in the early years was the leader in the House was the leader of the party and the leader in the Senate was the deputy leader. And he was an amazing stump speaker. And, of course, in those days, you know, the stump speech was, was the main uh, form of campaigning. Mm-hmm. So he was the warm-up act for the leaders, in, including in the famous uh, Gimpy uh, policy speech by Andrew Fisher where he laid out the plans for, you know, transnational railway and, and, and a navy and all the other big nation-building elements which went on to 
be hallmarks of his government. Uh, and he was, you know, both Fisher and, and Watson were actually, all the history tells us, quite dour figures and quite yes. quite staid speakers. Um, but but McGregor yeah, was yeah. a live wire. So he used to warn and, and Although he was a live wire, but it was a live wire, but he was a teetotaler. He was a teetotaler, a strict uh, uh, Presbyterian, I think. Um, but but interestingly, made a speech in Parliament in, in the early days of the Senate where he argued against a prayer in Parliament, said the Constitution says no state religion. And I'm while I'm a devout Christian, I don't believe the Parliament should have a religion. We should not have a prayer. Uh, and we still have a prayer you know, 120 yeah. years later. Um, <laughs> as a Republican, <laughs> he argued against Wow, in those days. Yeah. The Privy Council. yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, and he was a, a fierce, a fierce trade unionist. Um, he actually, he was in the South Australian Parliament before he entered the federal Parliament. So he voted on probably the most important piece of social legislation any Australian states ever or colony uh, jurisdiction has voted on the votes for women in the South Australian Parliament. And voted You're right. It's impossible to find a bad word written about him in the memoirs and the histories of the time. Fascinating. Now, let's next figure, Lillian Locke. Tell us about Lillian Locke, Chris. So again, we don't really celebrate our suffragists in Australia because votes for women came earlier than most other countries and without violence. And to the degree we do, we tend to focus on those sort of, you know, independent, smaller liberal uh, women who are arguing for the vote. Lillian Locke was the Labor suffragist. She was a fierce a socialist and a Labor activist. She was the first female full-time employee of the Labor Party. And she campaigned with Vida Goldstein and others for votes for women. But where they became, they became a conflict when Vida Goldstein ran for the Senate. And the Labor Party said to her, well, you can't belong to the suffragist movement and the Labor Party if, if they're campaigning for Vida Goldstein as an independent. So she said, well, I'm Labor. She resigned her suffragist positions, uh, still campaigned for women to get the vote, but entirely from within the Labor Party. Some people might know her or know her story, but not realise who she is because they'll know her story for another reason. She's actually a, a, an important figure in Australian literary history. Her nephew, uh, Sumner Locke Elliott, uh, wrote the novel Careful He Might Hear You, which was autobiographical. Miles Franklin award-winning book. One of the earliest winners of the Miles Franklin. And it was about his childhood and the fierce and horrible custody battle, which was between Lillian and her sister because uh, Sumner's mother had died in childbirth. And uh, she basically gave up political activism to care for young Sumner and Sumner wanted to be with her, but another aunt aunt came home from London and sued for custody. And uh, it's, a, it's a terrible story, compelling. Um, and Lillian was the good guy in that story. Uh, and, so, and that's an important part of Australian literary history. And, and not many people know there's a connection between that Australian literary history and very important early suffrage and Labor Party history. Most intriguing story, my guest is Chris Bowen, author of Labor People, The Stories of Six True Believers. Now, Chris is a former Treasurer and Immigration Minister who now holds the climate and energy portfolio in the Labor opposition. Next figure, Chris, John Dedman. Now, he was a minister, uh, you say, on whom John Curtin and Ben Chifley could rely throughout the 1940s. Yeah, again, as you said in your introduction, we remember the big names, the Prime Ministers, but they needed people to do the hard jobs. And when Ever a curtain or Chifley had a hard job, they turned to Deadman. And he was really the backbone of that cabinet. Um, when something tough was necessary, they went to Deadman. So Deadman was the minister for war industry, i.e. getting industry totally focused on the war effort. He became very unpopular, both with industrialists because he told them what to do and what to make, and with consumers because he really took a hard nose to what was allowed in a war environment, a war economy. Famously, he issued a, an edict 
to remove pajama pockets because he said it was a waste of material. He <laughs> he said there would likely be two designs, two, two designs of suits. They were called the Deadman suit. He was called Lumbago Jack at one point because he cut the the tails off shirts. Uh, he, he issued all these all these harsh edicts, but he was absolutely dedicated to winning the war. And then. As the war was drawing to a close, Chifley transferred his own portfolio of post-war reconstruction to Deadman. He really is one of the fathers of the ANU. He was the minister responsible. Wow. Um, right. The modern CSIRO. Um, and he's regarded also, although it wasn't his title, he was the minister for post-war reconstruction, but he's also regarded as really the first federal minister for education and gave mm. the Commonwealth a role, including in universities, which had not previously been the case. Uh, and interestingly, Tom, he, he tried twice to get into university, once as a young man, and he gave up to go and fight in World War I. And then <laughs> as an older man, he got into university in Australia uh, and then gave up because he was elected to parliament. And then after he lost his seat in the 1949 election, he eventually went and got himself a degree finally as an elderly wow. man at the ANU, at the university he had helped found. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, you say his views were radical, but Deadman did not have a traditional labour or union background. We could go on. Next figure, Ken, Ken W. Reed. Ken Reed was really uh, a quiet achiever of the Whitlam government. Again, we all know the big names of the Whitlam era and how controversial it was. Ken Reed got on with the job. He was agriculture minister. He was very reforming, uh, got rid of the superphosphate bounty, for example, um, you know, the protests and rallies. But the farming community and the agricultural community built up a great respect for him. And then um, after Lionel Murphy went to the High Court, Reed was elected Whitlam's second Senate leader. And um, he didn't mind an argument with Goff, which was not easy to do. So he told Goff he was wrong <laughs> about the Governor-General. He had the wrong strategy. It was going to end badly. He urged Goff wow. to call an election. And historians can, can differ about whether he, Reet was right or Whitlam was right, but he was one of the very few who, who said to Goff Whitlam, no, you've got this wrong. To the degree he is remembered, he's, he's mainly remembered, um, much to my regret because he should be remembered so, for so much more, Goff forgot to tell him they'd been sacked. So Goff got sacked uh, <laughs> in the morning. He went home to the lodge to have a steak, called his House of Representatives colleagues up to the lodge, told them nobody told the Senate letter. Of course, in the days before Twitter or even mobile phones, word <laughs> yes, hadn't indeed. spread. So the Liberals then came in and moved supply. Reed thought, oh, you beauty, we've won. So we're going to pass supply. <laughs> nobody had, He passed supply. Nobody told him he was now the leader of the opposition in the Senate. Uh, again, you know, history might have been different if, if, if Reed had <laughs> held that up and Fraser couldn't deliver supply. The Governor-General, uh, Sir John Kirk, would have been in a very tricky situation. I, I don't know that Goff ever acknowledged it, but, but Reed was rightly furious to the ref for the rest of his life that Goff had forgotten to tell him. Chris, always great to have you on Between the Lines. Wonderful, Tom. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about some true believers. They're the four of the six that we talk about in the book. That's Labor frontbencher and historian Chris Bowen. His book is called Labor People, The Stories of Six True Believers, and we'll put a link on our website. Now, speaking of history, allow me to pay tribute to a former high school history teacher who died last weekend. His name was Philip Farmer. He spent a quarter century teaching at Sydney's St. Aloysius College. It's just by the northern side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You can actually see it directly opposite the circular quay. And like many good teachers, he had a great impact in the classroom. This is what Mr. Farmer told me about the importance of history on RN's Sunday Extra a few years ago. 
if you're in political life, and I'm sure there are many other jobs as well, you need to have some kind of a historical background so that you can speak with some authority. If you mm. haven't got that historical background and you're just drawing on the immediate present, sometimes it's a very shallow conversation. Yeah, the parochialism of the present. We're all too often indulging in that, aren't we? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, that's it for the show. And remember to hear past episodes, including last week's interviews with Michelle Ford on Southeast Asia's COVID crisis and Mary Kissel on the origins of the pandemic and the Wuhan lab theory. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer, and we hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.